Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast and another interview, this time with Peter Fenner. This episode also features an extended introduction. The extended introduction is about 19 minutes long, so at the end of this one, you'll hear a chime, and if you want to skip it, just jump forward. Why did I record it? Well, two reasons, really. One, the podcast is taking a slight shift in its direction, and I think it's good for regular listeners who care about this podcast project to know what it is. But also, I felt it was important to contextualize non-duality as a theme and as a topic, as it's Peter's speciality. and. The topic itself brings up so many questions and issues. I felt that at least attempting to address a few of them would help some of you, or might be interesting for you. You'll find out if that's the case or not. So what about Peter? Well, Peter Fenner is an interesting chap. He's an Australian who's been involved with both Buddhism and the non-duality community, if we can call it that. He's considered something of a leader in the adaption and transmission of Asian non-dual wisdom, and he's innovated various programs that he works with. He was also a celibate monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for nine years, and he has a PhD in the philosophical psychology of Mahayana Buddhism. His primary teacher back in the 70s was Lama Thaptam Yeshi, who was the founder of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana tradition, which many of you will be familiar with. Peter has taught principles and practices for something he would define as non-dual psychotherapy, and he's been working for many years now with mental health professionals to introduce aspects of non-duality as he sees and teaches it. For our purposes, one area of interest is his engagement with the Majjhimaka school, of Tibetan Buddhism or Indian Buddhism and its philosophy. And he's adapted some of their deconstructive methods for using thought and language to uh, undermine dualism or the conceptual split that accompanies the solidification of this I, the famous self, the famous self-existing io, as they say in Italian. Now, as many of you know, the world of non-duality is a curious one. It's got a lot of dodgy characters in it. Peter is not one of those. And that's partly why I wanted to speak to him, as well as for his connection to solid roots in the world of Tibetan Buddhism. This episode is the first of four interviews with writers over at Sumeru Press. They are distinct and varied in their topics of expertise and touch on themes I am curious about and I imagine that most of you will be curious about too. The first of the four is with Peter Fenner and his topic of specialization is non-duality. 
But before getting to him and his interview, I feel it is necessary to spend a few words on this topic and on a shift in approach to interviews and conversations taking place at this podcast. Perhaps an inevitability after six years on the job, I will be looking to move into constructive conversations that do not leave critique behind, but look to build understanding and further inquiry out of the history of the podcast, building new lines of inquiry going forwards. Sounds good, sounds nice. Well, I hope it does to you. Now, socially, non-duality is a complex, multivariant phenomena. It has become something of an easy sales pitch for the descendants of the New Age and a recognisable spiritual trope for you more critical listeners out there. There are endless numbers of teachers claiming to be able to introduce you to a direct non-dual experience of reality. Itself a fascinating claim from sociological and psychological perspectives, not to mention the philosophical and scientific challenges that a concept such as reality throws up. Now, there are obviously more or less intelligent proponents, even amongst the most new age of such figures. Some are, thank God, intelligently attempting to make sense of personally valuable experience, whereas others, unfortunately, are merely playing the whole guru game. Now, my interest in this term takes many forms. I am fascinated by the social dynamics of teachers and students, about claims to enlightenment, awakening, and attainment more broadly, and the implications of that, and even the explicit and implicit conscious and unconscious motivations for doing so, and the social relevance of that. I'm also interested in the social norms and conventions that spring up in closed circles of teachers and practitioners. I am fascinated, and fundamentally so, by their relationship with reality and fantasy, as any regular follower of mine on Twitter will know, two of my favourite topics. Obviously, the American need to quantify and commercialise such a term is also of interest, but perhaps less so. But there's more, and it's personal, outside of the podcast and outside of the conversations. The framework of duality and non-duality I consider to be a very ripe one for interrogation and exploration, both experientially and intellectually. If you are committed to Buddhist practices like I am, it is more or less inevitable. Depending on your proclivities and commitment to one school or another, emptiness, non-duality, interdependence and so on will be explicitly part of how you constitute practice or not, how you evaluate progress, directions to head off into, effort to apply. It'll also say something about the value you assign to outcomes and the nature of what it is you are or should be doing or believe yourself to be doing. There's more because my fascination also emerges from personal experience. I am very familiar with subjective states of profound union with experience, the uncoupling from identification with emotional and psychological content and their accompanying companion, yes, that lingering sense of an autonomous I. I'm very familiar with the descriptions proffered by teachers of non-duality and the benefits they speak of, 
And yet, there is an important yet. A yet that does far more work than many people allow. There is also something thoroughly unimportant, simplistic in all of this, which leaves me less impressed by such a shift than many proponents of non-duality. If for the Buddhist teacher Jack Cornfield, after ecstasy, there's the laundry, for me personally, after ecstasy, there is the desire to know and the desire to experience and taste the world in its complexities without recourse to singular claims about reality, awakening, outcomes, and the value of each. I wish for my practice to be far more aware of interdependence with the complex world I am embedded in. For me, it is simply not enough to retreat to spiritual rhetoric or to leave such experiences, however beautiful and powerful, as merely personal. If the critique, if the intellect, if the mind with all its beauty and wonder, linguistically, conceptually, is not incorporated into that experience or into that world of practice, to me, it's simply impoverished. Now, I don't assume that it should be that way for everyone. Really, I don't. I'm not selling a product here after all. But for me, at least, that's a non-negotiable aspect of the practicing life. Now, beyond my own explorations for myself, I am aware that, aside from reducing our own suffering and possibly making us more pleasant people, I do wonder how such transformations actually contribute to the wider world. And there are many arguments which would suggest that they don't. But hold on, before you assume too much, my more critical listeners, I am also left wondering whether they should. Should we expect religious or spiritual practices and outcomes to impact the wider world? Really? Why? If we should let go of should as a concept for a moment and look at what is, the questions are far more varied and many, and I don't claim to have the answers, but what I am trying to do is interrogate where too many are happy to self-celebrate, both for or against. Certainly we do seem to expect much these days, and our expectations are clearly shaped by the specific preoccupations of our place and age, and our forever desire to project the present onto the past may be, well, misplaced. Please notice the may in that previous phrase. I don't really know, but I imagine that you don't really know either. So what we're looking at are choices and practices in themselves, in how we think about and engage and critique practices, or not. <laughs> you see where all this goes. Now look, I'm saying all this, and I'm looking at all this from a mindset of critique. Critique is essential. It allows us to uncouple from certainty, to analyse, and to seek to understand beyond the surface level, and beyond the beliefs and expectations that we bring to a given theory or practice. But, and I think it's fair to say, Critique must go somewhere afterwards if it is considered part of a comprehensive attempt to engage and understand life as an active participant in the practicing life. Part of what characterizes my shift in style of engagement going forwards with guests is a shift in myself. I want to understand my fellow humans and their practices, and I want to try and do so from a more, a more tolerant position from a more appreciative position, 
and each of those terms I am trying to use uncondescendingly. But this shift is certainly informing the way I interview Peter Fenner, and one of the reasons for getting him on first really is part of this. He could both represent an ally or a companion on the way of the practicing life, and I would like to view him as such, and he could also be someone I choose to critique. My questions, in a sense, try to navigate that terrain. Successfully? I'm not sure. You decide. And I'm certainly not including Peter in the critique above of the New Age quarter of non-duality, and I wouldn't even want to be dismissive of them. I am, if I'm speaking truthfully, fascinated by all of it. Peter, though, has engaged seriously with the Gelugpa school of Buddhism through his teacher, Lama Yeshe, at one point, and in his ongoing work, including a PhD on the subject. His big takeaway was the dialectical method of the Majjhimaka school, and he has used it to explore identity, identification, and the possibility of experiencing or knowing what falls under many names. Direct knowing, unconditioned awareness, non-dual reality, etc. Now, don't get me wrong, his approach to non-duality is tinged with aspects of the non-dual community and its discourse, but it is reined in by his grounding in the most formal and logical of Buddhist philosophies. He is clearly operating from the sort of state that many non-dual teachers operate from and speak to, but he is not preachy and he avoids the common retort of you must experience it directly yourself, or you can only know it through knowing it, and that kind of thing. But you may ask, what is he pointing to? What is he helping others come to know? And at this point, I would move towards the end of this introduction by mentioning someone who knows quite a bit about the topic, David Loy. And interestingly, David Loy is perhaps one of the few academic stroke practitioners to approach the topic of non-duality in a comprehensive manner, and thus provide us with interesting answers, or at least more sophisticated points of departure for our own exploration. His 1980s text on the topic attempts to look at whether meeting points and diversions exist between the three main non-dual traditions, Buddhism, Vedanta, and Taoism. Many non-dual teachers, and Buddhist teachers and practitioners for that matter, would claim that discussing non-duality is itself to miss the point. Attempting to develop a comparative theory of what they claim to be beyond words is nonsensical. And, you know what? A sympathetic reading would say that from one perspective, they are right. But from another, it is essential. For critique to take form, Analysis is fundamental. To better understand the world beyond received interpretative frameworks which condition expectations and enclose thought, and thus experience, yes, theory is essential. It is not a paradox to attempt to talk about the untalkable. From one perspective, we merely lack the language to do so, and it's possible that that lack is due to prohibitions regarding analysis and critique. Rather than the personal and social, the linguistic and non-linguistic being in opposition or in some kind of dialectical split, it's always better to see them and experience them as relational pairs that create opportunity and tension 
openings and closures. The Galugpa school of Tibetan Buddhism is built on debate, after all, linguistic analysis, conceptual play and interplay, and engagement with theory, and it has produced one of history's most sophisticated analyses of non-duality through the incredible work of Nagarjuna and others. Work that I doubt the New Age corner of non-duality have ever read or engaged with seriously. Finally, the non-linguistic and conceptual realms have been ever-present in the history of Western philosophy too. Western Buddhist and Vedantic practitioners often dismiss this as they prioritise practice over theory, the personal over the shared. Yet, Western philosophy is hardly a history of disembodied thought, despite appearances that are surely accepted due to a superficial and often abusive reading of Western philosophy. Christian philosophers have wrestled with form and emptiness through their own conceptual matrices for thousands of years. And language is a construct, as we often hear, yet it is constructed within the confines of a world indebted to history and is at root relational and pragmatic. Its constructed nature is rich with historical grounding and the blood, sweat and tears of our forebears. To deconstruct may have taken on this popular meaning of taking apart, and thus suspending what results into a kind of vacuum. A vacuum, as we have said before on this podcast, often filled with potent desire that goes ignored, but its Derridian meaning is all about tracing our shared history in order to overcome our ignorance. Derridian deconstruction functions to remind us of interdependence, a term often discounted or left aside or read superficially, we are in relation to all things and the product of traces and lines and movements in the world in which emptiness can be read and experienced as void, but is challenged by another way of experiencing and understanding emptiness as utter pregnancy, as utter connection and utter embeddedness. To interrogate non-dualism is not antithetical to aims recognised by many proponents of it. If we see human experience as an ecology and our basic reality, material and social, as relational and process-orientated, it is natural to bring the apparently unconditioned into interesting and insightful relational moves with the conditioned. May this be a tentative start in such a direction. Enjoy. All right, so look, um, let me dive in with the first question, uh, which is a curiosity question. So, Peter, um, what is a PhD in the philosophical psychology of Mahayana Buddhism? And what significance does it have to your work today, if it, if it still does? Yeah, great. Thank you. Firstly, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, having this conversation, and I appreciate the scope of your endeavor. Philosophical psychology, already you're in sort of dangerous territory, bringing the, those two words together, oh, yeah. because uh, for philosophers, there's what's called psychologism, uh, which makes philosophy less uh, objective, less rational, let's say. But why the philosophical psychology of uh, Mahayana Buddhism, of uh, Majjhimika, 
Buddhism in particular, because if you step back for what, certainly there's a lot of logic in it, a lot of argumentation. You know, the great uh, Madhyamika philosophers, Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti, who was the focus of that study, uh, Shantideva, it's loaded with arguments attempting to show uh, that what we think exists uh, doesn't exist in the way that we normally receive it. So, and it uses arguments that can be, I mean, many people have formalized the arguments, attempted to uh, translate them into, uh, into the symbolism of formal logic or different formal logics. So it's philosophical, but there's obviously more going on. They're, the people engaged in the practice, they're engaged in a practice. The practice is soteriological. It's designed to liberate, to free. So it's more, more happening for it than philosophy as perhaps we would understand it in the uh, <clears throat> Anglo-American tradition. Um, so it was just right up front to say, yes, sort of it's psychologistic. It's, it, it's, uh, there's a practice. It's for a purpose. And the purpose, yes, perhaps it is, it is to understand reality. But that's because that's the only way to be free. It's sort of, in a way, it's, it's uh, not coincidental, but incidental that it's uh, the focus is cognition of reality as such, but that's because that delivers with it freedom for the consciousness that cognizes that uh, ultimate reality. And then the others just because, well, why? Um, Madhyamika, because part of my personal history of engagement with Buddhism and meeting uh, my, who became my root, uh, Guru Lama Thubten Yeshi, and um, I'd been studying Madhyamika at university, actually with the first uh, uh, teacher of uh, Asian uh, philosophy in Australia, uh, Ian Kasakoti Watson. And um, that gave me an opportunity. He invited Alami Yeshi to the university. I had an opportunity to see him, like see the real thing. And then being told, yes, well, his sort of his baseline philosophy is Madhyamika. It was wow, and that's that's where it takes you. That's where you go, or where you can go with this philosophy, which was, you know, exuberant joyfulness and happiness, and seemingly not an ounce of suffering. So those two together, I guess. Uh, studying Majumika and then seeing uh, the manifestation of it through years and years of practice. Uh, that was the only direction to move in from then on. And does that influence? Yes, it does. It does influence my present teaching, particularly around <clears throat> uh, what's called unfindability inquiry. So what I, in a sense, have done is to take very formal structures that were used primarily in individual medita meditation, 
um, you know, four steps that you, for example, might go through, ascertaining the object of negation, ascertaining the pervasion, these very, very formal templates that were used in the context of Vipassana, the Mahayana Vipassana, Vipassana meditation. Um, and then I started working with groups. And then I saw how what I had been studying for, for many years, for at that point, probably 10 years, Madhyamika in this formal sense was influencing how I was seeing my interactions, the dialogue that I would see. That, that, ah, that's the object of negation. That's what the problem. That's what the person is saying is problematic. That's what they would like to be different. So then I was seeing things um, through those structures, and whilst uh, in group, you know, everything I do, individual work and group work, it's very, it's a narrative. It sort of looks like therapy in a like contemplative a very slow moving free form organic uh refle reflective inquiry um it still is guided in in my background i know where we are relative to how things are structured in that majumika formalized formalized way mm. Yeah, it's interesting that um, uh, such a, an almost conservative form of philosophical inquiry from the Tibetan tradition um, mm. is being brought up and used in this potentially therapeutic uh, manner. Uh, how well do people respond to this this approach, this dialogical method? When I started, uh, so going back <clears throat> 20 years, um, uh a very varied response from people sort of being blown away, saying, wow, this is what it's about, this is what it's for, fantastic, uh, great to see what you're doing, through to um, uh, 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 people being uh, aggressive, defending a position, uh, then me working out what, what to do with that, when to let go, when to uh, do something with it. Uh, so a lot of learning. Um, so people testing me out, that's inevitable also when you're a new or a teacher who's sort of coming into your own as a teacher. Um, yeah, people testing uh the sort of solidity of who you are and where you're coming from. Uh, now, nowadays, it's changed a lot. It's a lot quiet, quieter, a lot more resting. I mean, the what I call Dzogchen Mahamudra dimension uh, flavors it much more. So it's not, uh, people don't see me. Uh, as being provocative at all, I I'm certainly never, I mean, I would back away from that because you just get a reaction and uh, that's not constructive. Um, so it's now 
people are not the people who come have either been with me or they've connected with me through other resources like video and so on so there's a, there's a background that people can have i uh, do have so it's much smoother they're just wanting just to soak in the space and just see how this deconstruction happens to see with more refinement what they're constructing mm-hmm. uh, seeing their own positionality and uh, seeing what there is to let go of so it's a, a very different uh, mm-hmm. atmosphere now mm-hmm. now robert thurman describes your book uh, radiant mind as a brilliant postmodern implementation of buddhist non-dual wisdom which is quite an interesting sentence in itself. Um, what do you think he's pointing to when he uses that word, uh, postmodern? Uh, that it's clearly the work itself. If you were to come into a setting, a workshop, uh, it, uh, it, it's cl- you would. It might take you quite some time, or you just may not get that it's got a Buddhist foundation unless you knew your Buddhism, unless you'd been engaged with it, Mahayana. So it's not not obvious. I mean, the, the, the word I use now more and more, I mean, the, the most recent course I've been offering is called Dancing in This. This is uh, tattva, so it's the reality. So that's like a code word that if you know what it means, that's, that's wonderful. But I don't use fancy uh, terminology. Uh, Radiant Mind has now sort of got a bit of a stamp on it. There are people who run Radiant Mind groups, so that name is used to define a particular way of working. Uh, but more frequently, we just talk about this knowing that this is um, emptiness, rikpa, nature of mind. We just keep it as simple as possible. And people uh, come to to mutually re-recognize the space. Most people have what in Dzogchen you would call recognition. So they recognize this. If they don't, then the work is to have that recognition happen. Once people have the recognition clearly and they've tasted it, they've been there, been on the journey from having a fixed identity, being someone with something that's wrong in their life through to just abiding with things as they are, co-emergent wisdom. Then when it's like they sense that opportunity in my groups um, and they very quickly just they're just quiet and they just and I and a sort of principle behind my work uh, that's described in uh, natural awakening is um, that I emphasize neither speech nor silence so that I think will immediately give you the flavor a flavor of the atmospherics of the work. I'm not trying to encourage conversation. 
uh, intellectualization nor trying to suppress it. So that's why it moves like waves of silence and then back into some dialogue. Things are deconstructed, dismantled, and back into silence. Okay, when you talk about uh, deconstruction, you're talking about taking things apart. Um, what, what precisely are you pointing to there? Uh, for me, deconstruction is, um, <clears throat> I mean, the way that uh, prasanga is best translated with the prasangika madhyamika, which being translated differently, you know, the translations have, have evolved over the decades. That's this reductio ad absurdum uh, type of argumentation. So that's strictly what I mean by deconstruction, unfindability, the unfindability of the self, looking for who is looking uh, and not being able to find who is looking, who is witnessing the person that we think we are. So that's deconstruction. So it's, it's really taking experience, our experience, and then working with it, again, following Buddhist principles in terms of understanding it to be constructed. The Buddhism, Buddhism says all reality is a construction, is constructed. So saying, okay, well, uh, let's look at what's happening and not saying it's right or wrong, but let's just look at it as though it's a construction. How is it built up? I feel disappointed that. So we've got a few different, the I is normally in there, and we've got different components. And then you do perform a sort of unfindability inquiry. You're saying, where is that? but in a way that gently leads to not being able to find whatever it is that one. So, so this is happening with, uh, if someone says, my mind, I mean, that's fantastic. My mind, those two words, my mind, which is gets said all the time, you know, in my mind, in my mind, such and such, my, me, this is me, mine, where is that? And the connection between the two, how would that happen? Hmm. So that's a sort of invitation when I hear that. I think, uh, and most of the time you let it go, but from time to time, it, it's, you can feel, uh, now I can, can we, can we just slow down a minute and just look at, at what, what, we've, what you've just said? Uh, about in my mind mm -hmm. and then gently slowly work with that yeah okay now um am i right in understanding that you were uh an ordained tibetan buddhist practitioner for some time yeah yeah how how was that for you and you might might find this a funny question but i quite like it uh, do you miss ordained life at all <laughs> Yeah, yeah, in some ways, sure. Um, I mean, my circumstances uh, were very different than normal uh, monastic life because I didn't live in a monastery for very much of that at all. Um, I was married, living with a family, and uh, these were the sort of circumstances, conditions that 
Lamy and she said, yes, you can do that. That's fine. Seems that he could do things that other people couldn't do. Um, so I was really, and I often I see my life in this way, is trying to harmonize or bring together things that are polar opposites, or at least uh, in uh, uh, don't easily come together or work together. So that was a lot of my life was how to uh, have that happen for nine years. And then when I look at other dimensions in my life, just the intellect and experience, my thesis, yes, a lot of it is uh, trying to take things that don't easily come together and have them work and fit and support mm. each other. And presumably, if you were connected to Lama Yeshi, was that part of the Galupa school of Tibetan Buddhism? Yeah. 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 And have you explored the other traditions of Tibetan Buddhism that that tend to um, de-emphasize, or at least they're not so um, deeply within the Majjhimika tradition? So, for example, there's the mind-only school. Have you given much thought to those other, let's say, core philosophical traditions within uh, Tibetan Buddhism? Uh, yes, I've studied with other uh, Nyingma and Kagyu masters, yes, yeah. so... Uh, receive transmissions in, in those lineages. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you you describe your your system as being inspired by Mahayana Buddhism, which you've mentioned um, mm. on a few occasions now. So Zen and also Dzogchen Mahamudra. These are traditions generally uh, rooted in non-dual practices, but they're also built on the other vehicles, right? So they're considered part of other practices which are not just the sort of tantric preliminaries but emphasize um, individual liberation through discipline and restraint and the development of compassion and loving kindness mm. i wonder what you think about this i've seen a lot mm. of western teachers emphasize these non-dual practices and often leave aside work on things like compassion or um, working on ethical dimensions of your day-to-day life what are your thoughts on that, and how do you think about that or work with that? Well, I think if you're taking uh, non-duality seriously, then it means you're, you need to be engaged in shamatha, so the mental quiescence, tranquility, and vipassana insight. And I think um, as soon as you're working at that level, uh you can discover or you do discover an intimacy of connection with other people when you know that buddha mind is a possibility for everyone when you're on the tram or on the subway whatever um on the road when you know that's a possibility uh, and you think, well, that's not happening, but yeah, down the road. And uh, when you're with a community of people who are just very generous, very warm, very giving, I mean, that's in my groups, that's a lot of what keeps them happening. They do the non dual work, which is lovely. This sort of commu- 
communing together in the non-dual and they're very generous and uh, loving so i don't that i think is comes through not like a, through an explicit teaching i mean what i what i believe i do well is the non-dual that's sort of my specialty and in personally i'm like full-blown mahayana buddhist the enlightenment of you know infinite beings and so on and from time to time i share that but i don't i know that things would not have developed for me if i'd made the development of compassion say tong len taken something like the tong len meditation and made that a component an element i don't know where things would have gone i mean at the moment we're actually doing the heart sutra which is interesting Hmm. because uh, it's Mahayana, but really non-dual. You could say it's not a lot of compassion, except that uh, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, is giving the sort of teaching. And we are uh, really finding the compassion in it is there when we are exploring it um, as a group. Um, for me, Non-duality is relevant to everyone. It's what's called a sort of non, uh, a definitive transmission. It's actually, it's contentless. So it's not like it's useful for some people at this point in time, not useful for other people. Whereas compassion, I mean, at the ultimate level, it is a cognition of emptiness. But Compassion for me, that, that feels that's more in people's private domain for people to discover for themselves what compassion is. How, how broad is it? Is it universal compassion? Is it uh, the compassion that you, you will commit eons of your future to? Um, so it just it feels, and I'm very want to be very careful not to sound judgmental, doctrinaire, but really to come from positionlessness with no shoulds or shouldn'ts. So that's where it is. My answer is accurate. I'm just, in other words, it's not clear. It's not, yeah, it is like I've just shared with you. <laughs> 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 okay okay <laughs> i think if i were to to summarize what i heard though i, I think it's uh <laughs> there's almost an implicit suggestion that if somebody has some direct acquaintance with this experience of of the non-dual or rather the non-identification with some kind of autonomous me somewhere right that, that perhaps something like compassion or loving kindness becomes a quality that that may naturally emerge but is explored as such rather than assigning some uh, i don't know ethical or moral mm. universal that they should be striving for would that would that right. be fair yeah 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 yeah, yeah. 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 it's a funny one isn't it because i think that traditions of all kinds including the ones we make necessarily i don't want to say solidify to some degree but they develop habits or patterns because mm. you need that in order to work with anybody right including your, your mm. yourself 
and so shoulds and shouldn'ts almost inevitably creep in somewhere, mm-hmm. which is an area I, I also find fascinating. I think that word is is so powerful, whether it's in mm-hmm. personal practice or whether it's in psychotherapy or whether it's in um, a couple relationship, right, or teaching. Mm-hmm. A question comes to me that I hadn't planned for, but I'll ask you. How do you stay attentive to that so it doesn't happen in your own work and in uh, your work with, with, with people? Because the desire to systematize what we do is obviously there, but that yeah, risk is also yeah. there. So how do, you, how do you work with that? Yeah, uh, great question. I mean, particularly with uh, natural awakening, which that came into existence with students who had done a radiant mind, a nine-month radiant mind course several times, said, okay, so show us how you do it. Open the book or write the book and show us how you do it. So for that, I mean, I think one of the things that distinguishes me a little from some non-dual teachers is that I look carefully at what I'm doing as I'm doing it. I mean, I'm very interested in how it works, why it works. So that's required in a, an element of, uh, I don't know if, I, I guess it's, it, in natural awakening as a training, it became systematized by a sort of set of principles for people to be aware of and uh, explore and integrate and embody. I mean, with natural awakening, a precondition for enrolling in that course was that people would already have a pre-existing group. They could, or they're already uh, meditation teachers or therapists who had uh, people coming together, or that they would create a group. And so we expected that it's like three months into it, they would have brought just a small number of people together to work with it. And then so developed a set of principles. There are things like um, not giving people anything to think about and yeah, doing that, being with someone. Because just not saying anything, that can give people a lot to think about. I mean, you can say nothing in a way that people just, you know, what the hell is this, is going on here? So it's a very, to implement that, it requires a, a real sensitivity and experience. You know, I went back to <clears throat> earlier, I was talking about our, seeing our experience as a construction. It's what I call finding the soft spot in constructions. That's the place where the construction will dissolve most easily, the soft spot. So that's, so that's normally a metaphysical notion like awareness or the mind, something that's that maybe not metaphysical, but already eth- ethereal and difficult to, uh, to label, to identify. Uh, I mean, a lot of what I call core competencies um, I mean, one is, as a facilitator, you have to go beyond your own need for comfort or avoidance of discomfort, because that distorts the work. If you're just looking to be comfortable, you can't. 
do it plainly. Pure speaking and listening is like a Dzogchen principle of neither validating nor invalidating what you're hearing, what you're either telling yourself or what someone is telling you. So you, you listen to it in a way that's just clean, clear. You're just not doing anything with it. You're not adding anything to it, taking anything away from it. If you see yourself thinking, oh, they've got it wrong with that, you just see it sort of cleanly and don't run with it, don't energize it, don't you don't move with it. Then things like the chatushkuti, the four ranges, the four corners that you get, affirmation, negation, contradiction and by negation, that's very, which you know, goes back to the Buddha and throughout Majjhimika. That's a very useful structure to when you're listening to people, to know where they're coming from, the type of how, what type of reification could be in the picture and how you're going to move with that. Noticing, and again, go, this is straight Majjhimika, over-negation and under-negation, which happens. I mean, it's happening a lot in non-duality, over-negation. People go to certain teachers and they over come back as over-negators, whereas it's not a neither-nor. In other words, they don't take the step further and realize that we can't, we can't find the self. So therefore, we can't say that it, it doesn't exist either because we don't know what it is mm -hmm. that we can't find. So there are subtleties that are important for uh, authentic, Clean, clear, uh, non-dual. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you you mentioned that over negation step, which I think mm -hmm. is is rife amongst many non-dual teachers, and I think it it can be mm -hmm. problematic for for people turning mm -hmm. up. What I'm hearing in uh, the way you're describing this process is more of the let's say the therapeutic touch, the creation of a mm -hmm. space and a dynamic of relationship mm -hmm. in which there is mm -hmm. a certain natural relaxation of, of psycho-emotional mm. tension. Mm. Yeah. And perhaps yeah. you could talk a little bit more about that relationship between the non-dual and psychotherapy. How do you, how do you see those two coexisting? Uh, any thoughts on that? Not really. I, I okay. feel that the work that I do is to offer my work, which is uh, pretty tight and clean and not psychological mm. i i offer it too i mean many i don't know what percentage but a 50 percent of students would be psychologists mental health professionals psychiatrists so they they have to do the work themselves i give them like show them how you can do non-dual interventions mm. non-dual inductions and then they've got their modalities gestalt existential whatever it is cognitive behavioral and then it's really for them to do the work in terms of how they can integrate it into into what they're doing okay. not as two different things but seamlessly yeah another connection there um are patterns so patterns are certainly a major issue, right, when you're working on any kind of practice because when I mean, the Buddhists, uh, or certainly some schools of Buddhism might talk about that it's karmic accumulation or 
or, mm. or whatnot. But you, you, you write and you talk about providing tools for identifying conscious and unconscious sources of suffering and uh, the possibility of learning to transcend those patterns. Now, mm. conscious patterns are, are obviously or necessarily those we have access to. Uh, and one reason I was thinking about therapy is because obviously it helps many people get in touch with the unconscious, right? Or even mm. subconscious, things which are coming through but can't quite be voiced or perceived fully. How do you, how do you go about recognizing that, that third category of recognizing unconscious patterns? And do you think it's genuinely possible to do so without help from the outside? I think one thing to say here is I don't look for anything. Hmm. I don't go looking for anything. I just work with what I see. Mm. And that can be people expressing deep emotions uh, that can sometimes just come up suddenly. Just something. I mean, one thing that happens is that people realize what a, how, what a hard time we give ourselves in life. And that can bring up a sort of grieving. Uh, process when people see just uh, what we do, how how hard we make it. When things like that, when the emotional dimension comes up, that's when the more Dzogchen, Mahamudra style, well, that's when that seems more relevant. You're just creating a lot of space, no judgment, but just really connecting. And it's like What's happening for them is happening for you. You really feel it is. Whatever their problem is now my problem as well because they're with me, they're here. So then dealing with it with the love and care and concern that we would want for ourselves. Is that answered? So I I I don't think of categories of conscious uh, sub, sub unconscious, subconscious, conscious. I don't, it's like in Dzogchen, you don't assume that there is anything more happening than what is happening. There's nothing behind this. Yeah, so you're not hunting for things to do to, I mean, some of it is just to keep in work, keep at work, have something to be involved in. Really, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself uh, somehow fulfilling the role of a bodhisattva? Uh, the bodhisattva, yes. I mean, the, whatever we want to call it, I should say ideal because it's how it's often spoken about, is uh, central. Yes, I want to be fully, totally, completely committed to manifesting bodhisattva activity yeah Hmm. and uh, many people um, are a little bit confused about the role of that say something like meditation practice after Mm. someone is directly acquainted with uh, this Mm. experience of of non-identification or or non-duality from experience we have the the legends and the myths about the buddha uh, who apparently meditated right up to his death Uh, how do you see the the ongoing nature of practice after being introduced to something like uh, this experience you've been speaking about? Well, it's not in 
know, an experience that there's not a like a before and after. Mm. I mean, sometimes people can uh, realize or have an experience. I mean, it's not an experience as such um, anyway, but people can ha have it, but not have a clear recognition of it, not really get that this is what it's all about. This is like the one and only state that can't be improved on or degraded because there's nothing there for improvement or to be um, de de degraded uh, in any way. So sometimes it takes a few, uh, some time of repeated uh, recognition to really get the, the profundity of this experience and then <clears throat> how I see it is you you live your life in order to uh, deepen our capacity to be here for the rest of your life and you make a little you make slow progress people as a generalization just overestimate what they're going to get from their practice People just uh, think they're going to get more. They should be here or they don't wear. But they're disappointed. And it's they're just like I've got the wrong algorithm or whatever. You know, they've got the wrong making the wrong calculation. So yes, you continue to meditation is a great platform for doing non-dual work. I mean, it's, it's the best platform for being, not being distracted. I mean, as soon as you're not meditating, there are hundreds of distractions, potential distractions. I mean, look around your office, look at my office. There's distractions just full of, you know, potential distractions, things that need to be done by when, you know. Yes, we're talking about, you know, continuous undistracted awareness. See, it's a little bit at a time, you know, five minutes here, 15 minutes there. So when there are opportunities to be here in the simplicity of the moment, you take advantage of them and do it. That's quite a down-to-earth, nice way to describe what you're pointing at. Great, good. Well, look, um, Natural Awakening, an advanced guide for sharing non-dual awareness. Uh, can be bought at uh, all your favourite shops. Uh, as you also heard, uh, Peter's written a few books. Another one I mentioned is uh, Radiant Mind. Uh, just a couple more questions left. So who would you, I mean, you, you've kind of given mm. partial and a partial answer to it, but who would you recommend your book Natural Awakening to? Uh, because obviously it's got that attachment and advance guide. Yeah, yeah. People, for people who are working with non-duality in some way, that it's, it's something that's explicit to them in some way. Either, either they're wanting to get into it and do a little bit more than just uh, read Zogchen books. They wanted to see, I mean, as someone, I think, in a, a reference for it said, I... I pull the curtains open, try to show how it works from the inside. And it's certainly if people are working with um, 
non-duality with clients or groups. I mean, I have a lot of people who come to me are people who, are, uh, say, teaching have been teaching mindfulness. They know about non-duality. They would like they they see it. They've reached a point where it's logical to bring that in. They need to, because like the people have done enough of the mindfulness, and the students are either saying, "What well, is this non-duality?" or they know there's something there. Then that would be that people would get a lot of value from reading it. Okay, great. And final question: What are you working on next? Have you got another book coming down the line? Well, I'm not sure where we'll go with it, doing teaching, uh, sharing the Heart Sutra, <clears throat> I'm not, and I've got a lot of notes. Whether that will come together as a book, I'm not sure. But there are, you know, I've got subjects that I've thought about for 50 years and made notes on uh, around non-duality, you know, the whole appearance and emptiness, you know. I mean, how does the impossible happen? How do two things that are diametrically opposed that share contradictory aspects, you know, divisible and uh, indivisible, yet in intimate union with each other? Yeah, I'd like that to become a book. Well, thank you, Peter, for coming on to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. I wish you all the best with your potential move to France and uh, ongoing work. Thank you for giving up your time. A pleasure. Thank you very much for the conversation. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools, well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, 
money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.